consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Kane here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. record but we've been sitting here chatting for a half hour catching up and being <laughs> actual friends you. oh my gosh oh it's so much fun and this is your first well we're recording on your first day back at work yes the start of the semester got delayed because of winter weather in the past mm. i guess happens in the pacific northwest so yeah today was my first official day of teaching I still have a few more days of blessed break. Freedom. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I'm just going to pat my own back and reveal that it was my brilliant idea to dish this episode to play the game Two Truths and a Lie. This was fun. I have to admit, it was so fun to see people's guesses, especially when they left comments. (laughs) Yeah, that was hilarious okay (laughs) so So, you're gonna tee up the questions yeah so these appeared on our instagram stories thank you jackie (laughs) um (laughs) and some of our listeners attempted to guess which one was a lie so here we go one galit once dropped an english horn and lied about it two Galit once played a read in a concert that she made from gouge to finish two hours prior. Or three, Galit once showed up to a gig without her music. Jackie, which one is the lie? Well, some of these are funny because if you've listened to the podcast the whole time, like you might know some of these (laughs) stories. Um, I think the lie is that you once showed up to a gig without your your music. That is correct. That's correct. That is correct. I did once drop an English horn and lie about it. And <laughs> I... 
<laughs> I was in high school, so sue me. <laughs> we had a mix, but it does seem like most of the people agreed with me and thought maybe you lied about dropping your English horn. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And I did once make a read in a concert. Well, two hours before the concert, I took a gouge piece of cane and I turned it into a read because I didn't literally have anything else to play on. Listen, you got to do what you got to do. Okay, question two. I once played a concerto on a cracked read. I once made it through a recital while sick by chugging Pepto-Bismol backstage. And, or I once fell asleep on stage during a tacit. Uh, most people actually got this wrong. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I was there when you made it through a recital while sick by chugging a Pepto-Bismol backstage. <laughs> we don't need to get graphic, but it's one of my biggest accomplishments making it through that recital on Pepto-Bismol and prayer. Absolute sheer force of will. Oh my God. Like an hour before I, you and Becky were driving me around Michigan and I was just like curled up in the back seat in the fetal position. I still don't right. know how I made it through that recital. It was literally sheer force of will and Pepto-Bismol. That's it. Double read dish brought to you by Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what's the lie? The lie uh, well, I originally thought that the lie was that you played a concerto on a cracked read. I did do that. Now, listen, a lot because of my truths are from before my frontal cortex was fully formed, so I don't want to be judged by them. <laughs> but yes, uh, when I was playing my uh, undergraduate concerto competition winning concert, my best read had a little crack, and so I put some nail polish over that no and i played <laughs> concerto with uh you nail polished it i i listen i'm not recommending this behavior i'm just owning up to it for the sake of the game don't judge me <laughs> consider yourself judged next which one is the lie i galit once sliced my finger open while scraping reads in rehearsal I cracked a reed on my teeth right before a big solo, or I dropped my reed under the riser during a concert. And actually, most of the respondents got this one right, I think. Uh, cracked your teeth right before a big solo? That's the lie. I feel like we would have heard about that if that had happened by now. <laughs> well, we you have talked about dropping your reed under the riser on our embarrassing moments. To date. One of my funniest moments. Well, tell us about scraping or slicing your finger open in rehearsal. Also, prefrontal cortex. Yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, was playing English horn in Scheherazade at Eastern Music Festival in like 2001. And you know how it's tacit? Oh, my God. Both of those incidents that were true happened in Scheherazade. You're cursed of that piece. I'm cursed. <laughs> I bum, 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 ba, da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, I was scraping a reed and accidentally like 
sliced my entire finger open, was bleeding everywhere, ran out of the rehearsal to the nurse. She was like, I'm the Guilford College nurse, not the festival nurse, so I can't help you. And I was like, but I'm bleeding everywhere. And she's like, here's the Band-Aid that you have to put on yourself. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then I scurried back to rehearsal and made it in time to play Movement 3. (laughs) Oh, that's a brag. That's traumatizing. (laughs) Okay, what's the line? Do I own 10 of those wire bassoon player trinket dudes? You know I know that's true. (laughs) Have I once played a recital with no shoes on? Or um, did I once break an oboe in half? Uh, And what did the listeners say? They all thought I was lying about breaking an oboe in half. I feel like you would never play a recital without shoes on. I did play a recital in stocking feet like a web-footed <laughs> duck. I am more willing to believe that you snapped an oboe in half than you played a recital shoeless. That's true, too. Those are my two truths. <laughs> the trinket guy is the lie. Okay, and again, I was super young for both of these. It was my junior recital. So you're what, 20, 19? Uh-huh. Um, and I bought shoes to wear and had not tried them on ever, hadn't worn them for one second. <laughs> and I go to put them on and they immediately, my feet were bleeding just from walking like three steps. They did not fit. And I was like, I can't wear these. I'll be so distracted the whole time. And I was like, I'll just go on with no shoes on. So I had no shoes, stocking feet, and the parts where my feet were bleeding and it was had like bled on the pantyhose. Yeah, like I'm so, like y'all who know me in real life, like I'm so buttoned up. I'm such an Enneagram one now. I look back and I just have to have patience for the stuff that my students do that I'm like, what is wrong with you? Because I look back at myself and I'm like, what is wrong with you? to be like what is your problem but then you like think back like 15 years and you're like oh that was the problem oh i was way worse than you you're much more (laughs) responsible than me and related yeah i i was playing the oboe in like the second band as a elective and i saw all these clarinet players with their clarinet instrument stands and i was like well i don't have one of those but i still like the idea of just standing my instrument up and so i just put the oboe vertically on the ground on its bell without an instrument stand and then it just fell over and broke in half and i just went up to the band director was like i broke this oboe in half it was a school oboe and he was just like (sighs) i'm like took it and i don't know i guess got the tenor mood back on is the shape of a silent scream honestly i'm (laughs) i'm not proud of this stuff chris it was funny my husband chris was playing when we had these on the stories and he like was like, wait, so what's the lie? And I would tell him, he's like, what? Why are you admitting this to people? Like, why do you want colleagues in the field to know your truth? Because our shameful truth is everyone's shameful truth, Jackie. That's why. <laughs> Everyone has a shameful truth. Uh, okay. I once played someone else's read in a recital. I once played a concert on a broken oboe after stepping on it backstage, 
or I once showed up for a professional rehearsal without any reads. Which is the lie? I think the lie is that you played a concert on a broken broken oboe after stepping on it. That is correct. That was the lie. Okay. And most of the listeners got that one. I think that was a pretty easy one. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so you just like... I don't like this read for my recital. Hey, studio mate, give me a good read of yours. It was more like I was halfway through my recital and my studio mate felt so bad for me <gasps> that he came backstage and gave me a read. Because <laughs> he's the kind bad. <laughs> person. Here, take this. It's like, just play this, please. Just play this. And I was like, God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's Shine Theory in the Wild. Oh my god, I love him. All right, last one. What's the lie? Uh, in a fit of jealousy, I once snapped a studio mate's best read in half. Rather than a bassoon solo, I chose to sing a Mandy Moore song at my high school graduation ceremony. Um, or I once had my bassoon stolen and overwhelmingly nearly 100% of our listeners think I am lying about snapping my studio mate's best read in half. What do you think? Lee? I was going to say that one too. Yeah. It is true. I <laughs> No, it is true that that's the lie. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I could have said that a little bit better. It is true that that is the lie. I did not ever snap anyone else's read in half. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> What what was the Mandy Moore song? Oh God, what was it? It, it was one of the ones from A Walk to Remember. <laughs> I do not have a good voice, but in high school, for a period of time, I was convinced that I did, and I was like, I'm all up in these talent shows. I'm singing Wait. in the choir. No, but is there a video from that? I hope not, because I cannot <laughs> sing. I am not purporting to like, oh, I was a singer and then I chose to, but no, like when I sing, I remember I was in my junior high musical and I started singing the song I had a solo on and you could hear the audience like, <laughs> it was not good. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleuré of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's oboechicago.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Master Gunnery Sergeant Leslie Barrett, 
co-principal oboe of the president's own United States Marine Band. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Thank you. You got that all out very well. <laughs> I didn't know to add like uh, Mother of Dragons and. Uh, you know, the... <laughs> Could we hear uh, how and when you started playing the oboe? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me today. I'm really honored to be here with you all. Wanted to start with that. Um, I started playing the oboe in my sixth grade band, and luckily, I was born into a musical family. So my parents are trained musicians. They don't play for their living, but they're trained musicians. And they knew that um, they wanted us all to be musicians. So there are five girls in my family and I'm the youngest. Oh boy. Um, We all grew up. Yeah. We all grew up playing the piano and singing from the very beginning, but my parents knew that we would need scholarships to be able to afford to go to college. So they knew we had to play instruments. That was just a requirement. And when we got into our sixth grade band program, we had to choose one. So since I was the youngest, there were four that were already taken. Um, I didn't want to play anything my sisters had played. So my sister, Lisa, played trumpet. Luann plays, played bassoon. She was actually at Cincinnati Conservatory by then for bassoon. My sister was playing French horn. Marisa was playing French horn. And Laurie was very unwillingly playing flute. Uh, So that took all of those off the table. Um, But my next door neighbor, who was my sister Larissa's age, he was a junior in high school. I had a huge crush on him and he played the oboe. (laughs) I couldn't even pick out the sound of the oboe off the radio. When the symphony came on, my family would say, there, that's the oboe, that's the oboe. And I could not hear it, but I didn't care at all. I thought if I played the oboe, Rob would give me private lessons. Oh, yeah. He'd fall in love with me. Mm-hmm. He would get married happily ever <laughs> after. So the oboe was my choice. <laughs> so you have to tell us the end. Are you guys like. Oh, it's so Did sad. You... It's so no? sad. He, he, I must have terrified him. He <laughs> playing the oboe all together. Never gave me a single lesson. <laughs> I'm very sorry if I turned Rob Ritchie away from (laughs) career, my intense crush, but that's how it went down. Shout out to Rob. (laughs) So when did you decide that you were going to go into music as a career? I think I always wanted to go into music as a career, but I never wanted it to be the oboe. I wanted to be uh, a concert pianist. Then I wanted to sing at the Met. Um, and the oboe was the thing that I needed to play to get the scholarships. Right. So, you know, I was the only oboist in my school. I went to, I was from a small town in Missouri and there was only one oboist in my junior high, me, one oboist in the high school, you know, me, and I I didn't have to be very good. I was first chair and I was a good enough musician from piano and singing that I, I was fine. You know, people said it sounded good. I'm sure it didn't. But I was able to do what I needed to do. And we had wonderful experiences in my concert band. Um, I got to play four Scottish dances as a sophomore in high school. We even actually took the band out to Washington, D.C. for a competition uh, and where we played four Scottish dances. And, you know, I have wonderful memories of that. But then um, my parents decided that maybe it would be a good idea to get me a little bit deeper into the music community and um, thank you, Grandmama. They helped me go to Interlock Arts Academy, 
for my last two years of high school. And there I did all three instruments, piano, voice, and oboe when I first started. So again, the oboe was kind of a way to get in, a way to get the scholarship I needed to do the things I really loved. Um, And when I got there, here I had come as, you know, the only fish in a small pond. And I get up there and I was ninth out of 13 oboes. Hey, that's not bad. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's not 13 out of 13. You're right. It's true. You're right. It's somewhere. But I had and still probably have a pretty competitive spirit. And I was mad. <laughs> so I had to start practicing the oboe. So I started spending a little more time with it there just to prove to myself and to everyone around me, because that was important to me then that I could do it. That it wasn't, you know, something I wasn't capable of. So I practiced more. Um, and in the course of practicing more oboe, Spending time in the practice rooms, I discovered that there were piano majors at Interlochen who were practicing nine, 10 hours a day down there. And I thought, well, I'm not doing that. I'm never going to do that. That's just not going to be who I am. So I dropped that major pretty quickly, um, but kept singing because that was really my first love. And it's still the place where I can feel the most music um, when I when I get to do it. Um, because there's so much less to do, like mechanically, there's so much to do on the oboe that I'm constantly thinking and analyzing and, you know, with the, but with singing, I can just sing. Um, so yeah, so I started spending more time on the oboe and decided that it wasn't so bad. Um, still wasn't planning to do it for a living, but we had at Interlochen colleges would come to us for people to audition, which was amazing. And the whole experience there was amazing. Um, but we had colleges that would come and hold auditions in, a, in the basement of the dorms, just in a little practice room. And one day I was walking by um, my senior year, it must have been, I was walking by the dorm basement, you know, on the way to do my laundry or get popcorn or something. And there was uh, an audition going on for a school I'd never heard of, Southern Methodist University. And I thought, well, I need some audition experience. Uh, So I decided it would be a really good idea to get some audition experience before I tried out for the places I did want to go. And so I checked to see what I would need to do. And I went down there and I auditioned for the dean of the School of Music, who was sitting there in a room. Never had an audition like that. Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't much care. Just wanted the experience. Um, And he was a lovely man. Uh, talked a little bit about the school and it was in Dallas. And so I, you know, kind of started finding out what it was. Um, But then really when push came to shove for going to college, it came down to scholarship as I knew it would. And SMU was in a great place at that point and they gave me what I needed. Uh, So SMU was where I went to college and I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I figured I would major in oboe and voice that's what I loved. And then I would go to law school and I would be some high and criminal attorney that would be in, you know, jury law and be in the courtroom saying, you know, you know, you're out of line or whatever you say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I went to, I went to college with no expectation of being an oboist at all. So talk us through embarking on your professional journey. Uh, When did that change? And um, how did you get to where you are today? I still harbored a desire to be a professional singer. So 
I spent my first two years at SMU in private lessons with both Eric Barr and Virginia Dupuis, so vocal teacher and my oboe teacher. Um, and both of them were very demanding and both of them had things they needed me to do. And before the end of my sophomore year, they got together and said, look, she can't do both of these. She's going to have to pick. So they came to me and said, you're going to have to pick. Furthermore, if you want to be an oboe major, you're on probation because you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And again, that made me so mad. They're like, fine, I choose oboe. <laughs> exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened. It's the oboe. I am relating so much to this story. What do you mean I'm not good at it? I'll show you. <laughs> to a T, that was how it went. Yeah. I do not like being told that I am not capable of doing something that I think I'm capable of doing. So it wasn't until the second half of my undergraduate time that I decided to really kind of buckle down and focus. Got a lot more done in those years. Uh, and by the end of that, I decided, you know what, this is pretty cool. I, I really like this. I, I'm kind of good at it, I think. Uh, let's see where we can go. So I did drop voice as a major. And um, yeah, so I decided to go to graduate school for oboe. And I, I applied to um, a couple of a few schools and got into a few. And uh, one of the ones that I was considering was a beautiful named school in New York that sounded like it would be very fun and give me a lot of cachet and it would be the New York experience. And I really wanted to do it. But Eric Barr said, you know what? I think you might really enjoy studying with this friend of mine, Martin Schuring at Arizona State University. But I went out there to audition for him and we spent a long time in the audition. It was a lesson audition, you know, just playing and talking. And then he called on the phone and we talked for hours about the philosophy of playing the oboe and just the approach to playing, the physical approach, the musical approach, all of it. And I I really liked his attitude. I really liked his analysis. I really liked how thoughtful he was and how much time he was willing to give to his students. And, And that's where you know, I ended up going and he was amazing for me. He was exactly what I needed. So, okay. I want to know how you ended up in the president's own Marine band. I have a story that is similar to several others in the band. I was not, that was not a goal of mine as an oboist. Your goal is to play in an orchestra. You think you're going to play in an orchestra. Band never occurred to me as a thing that I would want to do. But my husband was in an education class as part of his doctorate work. Um, And a recruiter came in and was talking to them about opportunities in military music. And one of the bands he mentioned was the President's Own in Washington, D.C. And that was a band that we were familiar with. I knew people who had been in it before. um, And I knew it was great. And I knew that it had a a reputation. But like literally no one who's ever met me would have thought I would be a a Marine. Um, So that hadn't been on my radar as something to do. But my husband called them to see if they had any, any viola openings, which was his instrument. And they said, you know, we don't have any viola openings right now. There's nothing coming up. But in three weeks, we have an oboe audition. And so he said, well, okay, send us the stuff. So they sent us the materials. And we decided just like 
everything else, this would be a good audition experience. I was starting to take auditions at that point. I had taken, I think, two, two or three auditions. And I thought, you know, this is another good audition experience. I do know people who've been there. And I talked to the, one of them was in Phoenix at the time. He had quit the band after four years. He had decided it was not for him. So I thought he'd be a great person to talk to because he would definitely give me all of the scuttlebutt. Like, here's what you don't want about this band. Um, so we got together for coffee and talked and I, all the things that bothered him about his job there wouldn't have bothered me, um, which I thought was, was interesting, but I really loved his insights into his experience and his descriptions of the band. But he also gave me some, um, audition advice, you know, make sure that your articulations are nice and short in the marches, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went in there feeling like I kind of knew what I was headed toward a little bit. And, um, flew out one day and the next day was the audition came in to check in. Um, and then, you know, just went in and, and did my thing and it ended up being three rounds. It was a long day. I think we had, didn't end until six or 7 PM. Um, and they had us, you know, do the prepared, uh, the prepared repertoire. And then in the second round we did, I guess we still, I mean, we obviously did still more prepared repertoire, but we might've done our, ensemble playing then I sight read with two other oboists at that point and then they had to come back for the third round and by then you know we're all getting pretty tired we're all kind of done um but I think that was the round that kind of solidified it for me because they said you know you didn't really show the fatigue and our job uses a lot of long hours and a lot of playing in unusual circumstances so we think you might be a good fit uh and then they gave me you know some time to decide whether I wanted the job. And during that time, I talked to more people and thought about it and talked to my husband. And we decided at worst, it would be a four-year paid education. Mm-hmm. You know, all your materials are paid. You get an oboe, you get all your reed supplies, um, you get the cane, you get everything. And so I figured I would give it four years of getting better. And then I would go audition for an orchestra like I always thought I should do. And then t- Almost 25 years later, I'm still here. And I love it. Continuing the comparison of wind band playing and orchestra playing, a lot of our educations are geared toward preparing for an orchestral experience. So I'm curious how a uh, list, an audition list, compares. Do, Do any standard orchestral excerpts make it onto that stuff you're playing? Or is it um, some uh, wind band rep excerpts and uh yeah that's my question I don't know why I keep talking yes so uh, yeah I'm curious about the list (laughs) there are both orchestral excerpts and band excerpts on our lists um we have like I think I played the Mozart concerto probably so we have standard things that you're preparing anyway in your schools or in your preparations for auditions we have standard stuff on there I played La Scala I played Tombo I played Beethoven 3 um Bizet Symphony and C, you know, really standard stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we also had Percy Granger, you know, Lincolnshire Posey was on there. We had a Susan March, I think, on there. Um, so there were a couple, two or three band specific excerpts and mostly the standard stuff that you'd be preparing anyway for any audition because you're not looking for a band player. You're looking for the best player. You're looking for the best instrumentalist or musician that you can find in the at that time. And the repertoire they play is secondary to how they approach their play. Uh-huh. 
but it is, since you brought that up, a very different beast to play in a wind ensemble or a band than it is in an orchestra. Would you tell us more about that? Yeah, I didn't expect it. I mean, I'd played in bands all the way through because that was all we had in my small town. We didn't have an orchestra. We just had a band. So I'd kind of grown up training in bands, but it didn't feel like it feels now. Now, I think the hardest thing that we do is to play in the band. It's when we get a chance to play in the orchestra, it's like a breath of of easy air, of free air, because you can play, uh, you can play your instrument in a set of overtones that were intended to be put together by the composer. Mm-hmm. You can play, uh, most of the music is written by someone who knows what they want the oboe to sound like. Mm-hmm. They intended to have that sound of the oboe in that moment. And so you can kind of idiomatically play your instrument the way it was intended to be played. But in the band, a lot of times you're playing transcriptions mm-hmm. or you're playing with a a mix of other instruments that is really odd, dyna- uh, not dynamically, um, sonically. The, yeah, the timbre I find is is a lot brighter. It's really challenging. Yeah. And what I've found is necessary that I didn't expect is to be able to play much softer than I ever have to play in the orchestra. Mm. And also to be able to play in a much not quieter like you have to adjust your sound so that you can blend and be a part of a clobo sound not a clarinet flute oboe sound and in the orchestra you can do that and you can still have some personality of your own instrument in there but if you put it in the band then suddenly you've just got too many clashes with the saxophone and with the euphonium and with the bass clarinet and whatever else else it might be there's just too many opportunities for danger and you kind of need to to hide in there sometimes. Mm-hmm. In the Do you 2D find context. you use less vibrato? No, okay. yeah. it depends. Okay. I definitely use vibrato more as a color and as a as a decoration than I do anything else. Anyway, so if if the uh, trumpets are playing my part in my octave, you know, I can kind of <laughs> sit back a little bit. <laughs> You feel grateful to them for giving me that little break. But if, you know, if it's a part where you can really hear our part, we're going to use vibrato in the same way that we would mm. approach any other phrase. Um, I find that when I am trying to blend, tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's similar to playing in a wind quintet where you, I, I feel like I stick out a lot in a wind quintet. And I bet it's probably similar in a wind band if you're playing in a wind band all the time. And I find that I feel really exposed, especially when I'm using a lot of vibrato. So when I'm playing like with a wind quintet, I find myself pulling my vibrato back a lot. Um, And then I'll ask my colleagues, like, what do you think? Like, should I be doing a little bit more? They're like, yeah, do it. But I always feel really exposed doing it. Yeah, there are some similarities. And I know exactly what you mean with the with the wind quintet. I also find that to be very challenging for me personally the wind quintet is one of my most challenging chamber groups Mm -hmm. but the band there are things about playing in a band that are much easier than playing in a wind quintet it's not quite as exposed since you Mm -hmm. do have colleagues playing with you on each of those instruments but it's also um spatially much more challenging because i'm in the front row here and the clarinet is in the second row on the other side of the ensemble mm-hmm. and the flute is across, you know, in front of mm-hmm. them. And 
you know, the bassoon's behind me and the French horn is way back there. You know, everybody's so far apart that trying to hear each other and trying to get into each other's sound and trying to phrase together, you know, really brings a whole other set of challenges that you don't get in the orchestra. You don't get in a chamber group. Mm -hmm. It's just a fascinating experience to, to play consistently. And at this high level in this kind of an ensemble, it's made me a different kind of musician. And I really appreciate it. It has made me grow. And I really appreciate that it makes all the other ensembles feel a little easier. (laughs) (laughs) So considering all of these unique challenges of playing in a wind band, and then, of course, looking for other colleagues to play with in a wind band, what are some things that you look for in uh, potential colleagues when you're listening to auditions? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, Well, the first thing we look for is command of your instrument, obviously, and the ability to uh, adjust on the fly. We often ask in our auditions for someone to play an excerpt a second time and to make slight changes here and there. And that's that's really important to us um, because we do play a wide variety of music and in a wide variety of settings. And oftentimes what you think is going to work just doesn't. And the, the conductor gives you a tremendous amount of direction to change things here and there, whether your articulation or or maybe your vibrato or which voice is going to come out or whatever it may be. So you really need to be a flexible musician and a flexible player. Um, So we, we often kind of test for that a little bit. We also do ensemble playing in all of our auditions so that we can see how you blend with the ensemble, because that has become a really important part of what we do. Our oboe section is amazing. I absolutely adore them. And um, we can all, like all four of us can play together full, long phrases and sound like one. Like we know each other so well and we can really kind of become one person because we've played together so often and because we listen so carefully and we all work on doing that. So we kind of just try and see who we can get that would be a great musical colleague and have the control to do what they need to do to make that happen. In speaking about how, you know, they're unique, you're developing a unique skill set for this job. Did your reads have to change at all in this position? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a funny That's question. Because very much, yes. <laughs> Yeah, my reads did have to change quite a bit when I first got in, but I'm not sure if they had to so much as I thought they had to. And now it's been so long that my memory of what they did might be inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Um, But my reads have made tremendous changes from the time I got in to the time that I am in now. And you should ask me about that later because I forgot to tell you that I don't make my own reads anymore. (gasps) Can I ask you about that now? Sure. Tell us, please. Okay, so early in my career, I worked myself into a terrible corner. I was preparing for a Dallas Symphony audition. I was preparing for our concert tour, which we do um, every October. And back then it was seven and a half weeks on the road. We did 49 concerts in 52 days. And each day was in a different city. Now it is a a much greater um, 29 concerts in 31 days. But regardless, I was trying to make enough reads for that. I was preparing for this audition in Kansas, I mean, in uh, Dallas, 
And I was playing a lot of piano because my grandmother's piano had just been brought to my house. And so I destroyed my arms, Mm -hmm. just destroyed them. And when I went to um, find out why my fingers had gone numb, they put me in physical therapy and the physical therapist put me on a weight training program immediately, like lifting to try to make my muscles bigger so that the pain would go away. This, as a musician who's been through injuries knows, is the opposite of what you need to do. But the people I was working with were completely unfamiliar with musicians' injuries, and they were treating me the way they would treat any large injuries that they were used to treating, sports injuries and what have you. Um, So I continued to get worse and worse and worse, and it got to the point where I could not only not play the oboe, I couldn't pour a cup of coffee, I couldn't wash my own hair, my husband had to cut, cut my food. I was a complete invalid. Um, it just wouldn't work. I am so, so finally, sorry. thank you. It was, it was easily the worst experience that my husband and I have had to negotiate through our career, through my career, um, in our time here, but the Marine band helped me get to a musician's injury specialist who one day a month, I think, um, he works at the VA hospital in Boston. And so he had that little military connection, but he's the, he was anyway, the head of neurology at the Brigham and women's hospital in Boston and the Marine Corps actually paid for me to go up there and see him. And that was, I cried in his office when I got there because he understood he was able to diagnose me accurately. He was able to come up with a plan and it took months and months of rehab. I started when I started playing again, which was months after I saw him. Um, I played for literally two minutes a day for two weeks. And then after a 20 minute break, after my two minutes, I did another two minutes. And then after two weeks, I was able to do a third set of two minutes. And then each time I added time, it was to add another two minutes to each set. It was the most incremental slow process to get back but it worked and I was able to get finally back to playing in the band but I never was able to make reads again it just is there's too much soft tissue damage nerve damage so from that point on I started buying my reads and I'm so 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 fortunate huge huge shout out and thank you to Laura Schaefer Burnt um, who was a friend of mine at, at Interlochen And at the time when I started needing these reads, she was in Kansas City Symphony and she made me reads then. And then she moved to Chicago Symphony and she's still making me my reads now. And I live in fear of the day that she decides, you know what, screw it. I'm not dying. I'm not making her reads anymore. But um, Laura, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) What an angel. She is. She has kept my career alive for 20 years. Wow. That's really phenomenal. Yeah, it's amazing. And I can adjust them. I I work on the reads she sends, but I can't start from scratch and still be able to play what I need to play and keep my body healthy. I, I would, I would love to know what you think about this. Um, but I, um, I wish it were more normalized for oboists, especially to not have to make their own reads, whether it's because they have injuries or 
I mean, honestly, just because they're not that great at it. <laughs> or you know, mentally, it's emotionally. mentally, emotionally, like it just seems a lot more accepted in other parts of the world and on the bassoon than it does with American oboists. And um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many reasons to not make your own reads. Yeah. Or at least part of the process, you know, people have kids, people have parents who are sit like life requires us to carve out time in the ways that we can. And it, it seems like this weird badge of honor that people wear. I agree with you, Gilly. It should be a lot more normalized to do what works for you. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. And I'm also really grateful that you're so willing to talk about it. Yeah. It, it has been a point of, of I'm going to say shame for me for a while, you know, when I first started doing that in particular, because it, as you say, it is not normalized. It's not what people do. You need to make your own reads to be a professional oboist. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm incapable of it. I know what to do. I used to do it. But even before I had my injuries, I was buying shaped cane for a while because of, because of what you said, Jackie, because there's other things happening in life. And I just don't always have the time to make sure I have what I need. And I had somebody who was, you know, able to provide shaped cane to a certain quality that, you know, that I felt comfortable with. Um, I do find that there are a lot more options now though, than there used to be. And maybe we are moving that direction. Some of the people that you advertise on your podcast are making reads so that people don't have to always go through that. But I do think it's super important to learn how to do it, to rely on yourself to do it at some point so that you can adjust them appropriately. And I don't know that you can adjust them without spending all those thousand hours doing the frightening work of of building them from scratch. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. I totally agree. And there are times, especially on these concert tours that we talked about where it's a panic moment where there's nothing there and, and you can't make something, you're not making something, you don't even have the equipment to make something. So you have to work with what you have. And I've played many a concert on, you know, five or six reads alternating like this. (laughs) (laughs) But if I play this one over here, I'll kill it for what I need later. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I think I'm, I probably drive my section crazy with the number of reads I have on my stand and how often I change them during a concert. Um, but that's, you know, one of my survival mechanisms and it works for me and I'm not going to overanalyze it too much. Yeah. Yeah. And I bet that you sound like you, no matter what read you're playing on. You're absolutely right. We've talked about this several times. I've tried their reads. They've tried mine. We all sound like ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just really grateful that you are are willing to talk about this because being a musician and being a read maker has become one thing in American oboe playing. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see it, you know, like we can look at the musician and n- not have that necessarily tied into the reads as much. Or let people do what works for them and Mm -hmm. just feel like they're allowed to do what works for them. Well, and as you said, you do sound like you. You sound Mm -hmm. like you, even on somebody else's read, as long as it functions Mm -hmm. appropriately and it takes the air the way you need it to. That's my number one priority. How does it take the air? Can I play it physically comfortably? And then 
And then I'll probably, I'll muscle it through. I'll do whatever I need to do to make it sound like me, but I'll adjust it to get as comfortable as I possibly can so that I don't have to work so hard to make that happen. If I made them from scratch at this point, would it be, would it be a more satisfying experience? I have no idea, but then sometimes I miss it. I, I hate to say that because it was <laughs> kind of miserable, but I do, I do kind of miss it. I miss the control. I miss yeah. those little detail that the work that you can do to, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of a nerd. So I don't, I don't <laughs> mind measuring to see where my tip was going to start or, you know, whatever. And now I don't do any of that. I just adjust. Right. You're experienced with needing to take time away and then needing to come back and play at a very high level. So what advice uh, do you have for those of us who, for whatever reason, have to take time away and then have to come back and sound great? Um, yeah, absolutely. That is, I've done it several times and I actually, it's never a wonderful reason, except for when I was on bed rest, I was on bed rest with my daughter for five and a half months. So that was another time where I could not play at all and then had to go back in, you know, to playing. Um, but each time I do it, it's, it turns out to be a really healthy experience because I start with the fundamentals. I get back to the basics and you lose your bad habits. Like they went away while you were not playing. And when you come back to it, you can not let them come back in at least for a while longer. So I have actually taken a lot of um, pride in being able to come back after long breaks, but I also am, am grateful that I've had that opportunity to refocus on my fundamentals, to rethink about how I'm producing the sound and which muscle groups I'm overusing or what have you. I think it's been good for me. Mm-hmm. I don't I recommend that. it, but I've, it's still been good. Mm-hmm. You can come back mindfully and thoughtfully. And yeah, I love that. Another cool opportunity that you have as part of your job is that you um, get to solo with the president's own. And I have found in my career, even just as a professor, that me and my students oftentimes have as many, if not more, chances to stand in front of a wind band than an orchestra. And totally. that exploring the concertos for that repertoire is, again, not something that's necessarily organic or inherently put into the student pedagogy, but something that's really relevant to the life of most when playing professional musicians. And so I'd love to hear about your experience um, with playing concertos. And maybe if you want to shout out some of your faves, you know, maybe a hidden gem or just maybe something people know about, but don't give enough love. Uh, can we hear about your experiences as a soloist? That's such a great question. Most of the times that I have soloed has been with the orchestra. We have an orchestra in the band, a chamber orchestra. And most of the times I soloed has been with the orchestra. I was able to do um, the Villalobos Quartet. Um, I did, was that the one with Jose Cerebriere? It was, it's out on Maxis, I think. Oh, oh fantastic. Cool. Yeah, that was exciting. Uh, so we've been able to do some some ensemble solo opportunities with band. But solo oboe with winds, I wish there were more, uh, more things available for that. Um, my colleague Tessa, Tessa Gross took a solo out on our concert tour in 2019, and she played the Remsky Korsakov, and then she did a beautiful encore of Gabriel's oboe. Oh, and that was lovely. I love and it. You know, so now there's a band arrangement of that, which is great. But often we struggle to find 
oboe pieces that are appropriate for the band. Hard to do Baroque with the band. It is hard to do Baroque. We actually have a high school concerto competition every year um, that Tim Gawkwin was our first winner. Oh, precious. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was high school baby Tim. It was high school baby Tim. That's oh, right. precious. <laughs> Uh, but he played the Haydn, you know, so we have some standards that we, that we have that are transcribed for band. Uh, that one we have on our list for people to um, audition with for that concerto competition. And I think the other one that we have is maybe Cali Woda or something, mm-hmm. but I would love to have more options that fit the requirements we need for that, that competition specifically. Like I want high school players to have wind band repertoire they can play because my, my school only had a band. I would have loved to have solo with my, with my band. You know, I'm sure many school districts have that situation. It would be lovely for high schoolers to have options to play. Yeah. Sounds like a commissioning opportunity. (laughs) Are there any wind band pieces that you're especially in love with that we should know about? Not like oboe solo pieces, but just favorites cool if rep. you yeah cool rep yeah um actually one of the favorites that that we've played was one that we premiered in Norfolk Virginia and it's by Michael Gandolfi it's called Meditations and Flourishes on a Renaissance theme it's so fun I loved playing it I loved the parts that I wasn't playing in it and the parts that I was it's just a really musically satisfying piece for me and I always and will forever love anything by John Williams Mm-hmm. I don't care that the oboe doesn't take a huge role. It's, we have an amazing brass section, like, unbelievably amazing. And when the trumpets are playing their majestic, you know, triumphant melodies and the horns are doing their gorgeous melodies. I just, it really moves me. What he writes does its job. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my favorites. Can we hear about a favorite memory of a past performance that sticks out as special to you? I can't tell you how many favorite performances stick out as special to me. And that's one of the things I absolutely adore about this job. I mean, I've played state dinners, state funerals. We play at the White House all the time. We play these enormous events, but we also play all around the country in small towns in a gymnasium. We have so many wonderful musical experiences from which to draw. One of my favorites was playing the Corleano Concerto at the Library of Congress. And it was, it was magical because I adored that piece and prepared that piece like crazy. So I was ready. Um, And I, and I loved playing it. And then at the end of it, nobody has to know it was my brother-in-law, but it was my brother-in-law went, woo! like very <laughs> started off this yeah. non-classical music applause. <laughs> very happy. Thanks Dwight. <laughs> um, and then one of my other absolute favorite experiences musically was in one of those horrible carpeted, low ceilinged ballrooms that you play in at Chicago Midwest convention. Mm-hmm. And we were playing the Mozart Grand Partita. Mm. Um, the room was wretched, but the experience of playing, it was one of those magical performances where you have a read that does what you want it to do. And it's like the, the on one hand reads for your whole career. I had one of those. Everything that I played happened the way I had hoped, I had practiced and wanted it to happen. 
Everybody around me was playing really beautifully well. Um, I loved the conductor's interpretation. Like it was just, the whole thing was just so lovely to be a part of. I don't even know if I've listened to it since then. I just live with that memory of it. I think that was the first time we did it there. We've done it since and it's been fun, but it didn't have that little special something that I absolutely loved. That was a fun one. Um, and then the, gosh, there are so many more. I got to play for the Pope. Who gets to play for the Pope? Just stuff like that, where you have to take a moment or inaugurations where you take a moment and you think, why is this my life? How is this a real thing mm-hmm. to be sitting here playing for these people? I'm just from this small town in Missouri and this was not in the plan, but it's, it's, it's surreal, but it's so fun. What advice would you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, I never thought I would have a career like mine. So I guess it would be as you follow your curiosity, as you follow your path, um, keep an open mind and, and don't be afraid to jump into something new and unexpected and see where it takes you. You never know. Maybe it'll be a really, really great life changing experience. That's fantastic. Leslie Barrett, we are so happy to have had this chance to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. It has absolutely been my honor. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We hope you enjoyed that fantastic interview and that your January in 2022 is off to a spectacular start and that you will follow us on social media and rate and review. There were actually several of you who rated and reviewed in the past couple of weeks, and it makes Galit and I so, so happy. So thanks to those of you who did that. I screenshot them and I send them to Jackie because I'm obsessively checking it. And then we both just exchange like crying emojis and hard eyes emojis together for a good a lot. 25 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you <laughs> to y'all who did that. And if you feel so inclined... Please continue. Uh, And uh, yeah, follow us on social media. We've got fun stuff coming up. Maybe some fun things to announce here coming up. So um, teaser, teaser. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Who do we have to look forward to on the next episode? We talked to Karen Miller Packwood, principal bassoon of the Oregon Symphony. And this was an awesome one. I can't wait to share it with all of y'all. Jackie and this nerd parade. Go make reads.